Buenos dias. What's up? Totally threw you off. Happy Sabbath, everybody. You know, that last song that we sang, the opening song uh, on 250, the, about the thousand tongues, the last line, the sixth line, it says, Hear him, ye deaf, praise him, ye dumb. I don't know who he's talking about there, whoever this author is. Um, I have thoughts, but, you know, I'm, I'm not claiming that I'm the dumb one. Uh, although sometimes I think I am at a loss of words. But I'm at a loss of words because of what grace God has given to, to us. The Lord has provided. And, um, and you look at these decorations here as, as we're nearing the Christmas, Christmas season, and it really is about nostalgia. That's really what, what, what you were trying to build when we decorate and stuff is a, is a nostalgia. And I'm going to just offer a, a prayer because for most people, you think of nostalgia as good. But this is a rough season for some people. If they've lost somebody, if, if, if somebody's passed away or if, or if Christmas has not been, and, and it blows my mind, but there are people that hate Christmas. Not because they hate God, it's just, it's always been bad. And so I want to lift up a prayer for those people before we start. Because this season, there's going to be a lot of people hurting at this time of year. So let's pray. Father, I know this is a little bit out of the ordinary, but, but this part of the year, there are people that need an extra portion of your grace. They need people to come into their lives. They need the spirit of the Lord to comfort, to embrace. Lord, I just ask that, that you continue to work on people. And Father, if the Downers Grove Church can do something to alleviate the pain that can reach out to certain people, I ask that you open our eyes and our hearts and that you are glorified through this church. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So as you know, we sing a song. And for throughout the year, for 11 months of the year, it seems misplaced. <laughs> but now we have it in, in December. We're in December. So sing with me. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Father, anoint us and be lifted up. May we not leave these walls without being transformed. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So now we're in James chapter 4. And James chapter 4, which you don't really read that many verses from in, in everyday life, I believe is the climax of James. It's where what we call when, where the rubber 
and the road seemed to meet. And you'll see that with his introductory, his, his question here. But, but before we get to that question, I want you to go to the, to the next slide there. There, is a, there were two clans in the 1800s. Have you ever heard of the Hatfields and the McCoys? You know this story. Actually, do you know that there was a game show that was based off of their life, which is called what? The Family Feud. You are very smart people. Well, the Hatfields and the McCoys, they, I, I remember when I was a kid, I was, there were cartoons based off of, of this sort of family feud. These were not huge clans, yet they made it all the way to a Supreme Court decision because of what happened. Now, it is sort of obscure how this feud began. Now, if you know anything about the Hatfields and the McCoys, one of them lived on the border of this creek. It wasn't even a river in Kentucky. The other one lived on the other side of this creek in the state of West Virginia. Now, as you probably know, how do I say this nicely? I, 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 I'm going to ask for forgiveness if you are from Kentucky or West Virginia. I actually worked, my first job was in West Virginia. Um, Kentucky and West Virginia, people from there are, are usually stereotyped as less educated than the rest of the, the country. Um, and maybe some stereotypes hold true. It is funny, some of the stuff that you know about the states. My, when I was in college, I worked at a glass factory with a guy from this town in Kentucky. And he told me, he, I, I, man, it's going to add to the stereotype. I'm so sorry. But really, he literally, I think, had three teeth. But he, uh, he said in his little town, now, where he was from, that it took, if they would call a pizza delivery, now this is 25 years ago or 23 years ago, if you would call pizza delivery, it would take 45 minutes for a pizza to de get delivered to his house or his parents' house. He said, if you would call 911, it took three hours for an ambulance to get to the house. There might be something wrong with that, what is important in his hometown. Like I said, I also worked in West Virginia. Now, I worked in Morgantown, West Virginia, where, where West Virginia University is. But we would have sometimes pastors that would come through in the conference that would have to educate people in the Mountain View Conference. Because it was such a unique history in West Virginia that there were actually people in the hills of West Virginia that did not have electricity. In the 2000s, they did not still have electricity? Is that, are you for real? It was another country. Well, I think that the stereotype was somewhat built off of the Hatfields and the McCoys. Because 
like I said, the, the, the origin of their feud was, was obscure. But it, some believe that part of the origin was that one of the families stole a pig from the other family. Well, what ended up happening, if that's true or not, that might be legend. Um, some people actually thought that the McCoys were unionists and that the Hatfields were Confederates and sort of started a feud because they would interact with each other. But no matter what, the first major bloodletting, as this one article says, did not happen until 1882 where Ellison Hatfield was mortally shot in a brawl with the McCoys. And in revenge, the Hatfields kidnapped and executed three McCoy brothers, Tolbert, Famer, and Randolph. Well, this continued to escalate to the point where they started killing and kidnapping family members. And when they would kidnap, they would say, it is, we are kidnapping to investigate. So this went up the law system to the point where in, 18, in May of 1888, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that which they had to rule with the state of Kentucky because it, was, it became West Virginia versus Kentucky because of these two clans, that they had the legal right to detain the accused for trial. So they were legalizing kidnapping. All possibly because one person stole a pig from another person. James chapter 4 starts this way. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. What is the cause of all the fights? You. I'm saying me. It's all about you. When everything is all about you, meaning me, when everything is all about me, then you have this. Now, what's sad to say is that traditionally, if you would survey people from churches, would you say that quarrels happen in churches? Yes. Our gospel is about selflessness, the selflessness of a God, Yet the enemy has planted selfishness in our walls. And it all becomes about what do I want? I mean, you really think about this. I, uh, and I don't know if I've ever told you this before. But in the Hebraic idea of worship, worship is about nostalgia and posture. And worship is about your experience with God 
all the time. It's very holistic to your life. But see, a lot of times, people don't have an all-the-time worship experience, meaning 24 hours a day at seven days a week. So what they do is they come to church, and they expect worship to be exactly the way that they think is right. And so you have worship wars within your walls because, well, that's not how worship should happen. That's not how music should be. I, that's not how this should happen. And it stems from, I am not being fed seven days a week, so I better get it exactly the way I want it that hour of the week. It is still about me. So we, we, we say, we have arguments and we say, well, I'm justify, justifying the cause of worship, which is very noble. But really it isn't. It's about selfishness. We become very selfish. Hence we have quarrels. Hence we argue at board meetings. And I don't think we've had one since I've been here at, this, at board meetings. I love the way the churches run here. I am being very honest. But you know globally... We have issues. And if we're not intentional about watching out, it could happen here too. So let's continue. He says in verse 4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? So he's saying you can only walk one path. By the way, there's an ancient African proverb, and I believe it was this proverb, and it was translated, and it says that a person, a man who tries to walk two paths will split his pants. You can't. You walk one way or the other. He says anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You cannot sit on the fence. Or do you think the scripture do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit has caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I don't know if you've caught this, but part of the reason I feel that this is the climax is it uses battle language. This is a spiritual battle he is talking about. This is not something light. He says the enemy is trying to snuff you out and you have to pick a side. You no longer can sit on the sidelines. You're either a friend of God or you're a friend of the world. But that automatically makes you an enemy to the opposite. It uses the words enemy. It uses the words opposes. And then even when it says it favors, that his grace favors, it could be translated, it protects the humble. He says, you're either the friend of God or you're a friend of the world. Let's not fool ourselves. He says, if you are a friend of the world, again, it is all about I am number one, right? I am number one. 
But guess what? If I am number one, that makes everybody else number two. I don't know if you caught that. That's somewhat, somewhat a joke, but it's real. If I put me as number one, everybody else really is number two. Dispensable. Something you scrape off a shoe. Now you might treat them nice if you can get something good out of them. But eventually a quarrel will arise and people will get hurt. So is there a solution? He says yes. Verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We'll get to that in a second because that's powerful. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Yikes. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That is powerful language. Now, again, why I think this is battle language is the word submit, and I'm not going to give you all the Greek, but the word submit literally means to accept the orders of a higher rank. It means that even though you don't know what the battle is going to be like, if you want to be successful, you just follow your ranking officer. He says, submit to God. I know you don't know what the whole battle entails, but submit to God. This is actually the, the illusion that it gives is David and Goliath. Do you remember all of Israel's army was, was standing along the sidelines and, and David, within his heart, he just, I gotta go out there. I gotta go out there and he submitted to the Lord, and the battle was won. This is the language it uses. Now, how many, is, how many of you have been in the military? Okay. Now, if you've been in the military, you may, maybe you can help me out just a little bit. Are you supposed to, if, if you have a job, to, are you supposed to do somebody else's job? Like, like... If, if, if an officer says you do this and you do something else, what happens? Okay, something bad, right? Something bad happens. And the military is driven or, or is successful on you doing your job. Is that correct? Because if you challenge what your job is and she challenges what her job is, doesn't the whole system fall apart? And what he says is, submit to the Lord. I want to show you a couple of, of pictures. How many of you guys have ever been whitewater rafting? So, me, I'm the darkest one in there. Uh, three white people and me. And they got, they got, Anna and I had been married a couple months. 
And then they say, hey, let's go whitewater rafting. A couple of church members, hey, let's go whitewater rafting. So we decide to go. It was our, you hadn't gone before, right? It was our first time going. And these, the categories were threes and fours. Now, as you know, like the really hardcore, you know, you got fours and fives. So these were pretty good. There was one part that there was a rock, a big rock, and under, there were, people would get trapped. And there was a place where several people had been killed. They've taken precautions so that people don't die there. But still, there's, they said, you've got to be serious about this. And the first lesson that they gave me that I remember is that when you fall out, which you will fall out, they warned us, you're going to fall out. Not if you fall out. When you fall out, especially being the first time, that the best thing for you to do is get to your back and just ride with it. Get your feet up because you don't want your feet to get stuck in the rocks. That's what rapids are, right? They're water going over rocks. So if you have your feet down and you try to swim with it or something or against it, somehow pe- people have gotten trapped in there. They said, get your feet up and you just ride it till there's a, an easier place. That's hard. That's hard when you, your nature says, I got to swim this out. And then they Second thing you need to do is to get back in the boat. We will, somebody in the boat will push you under the water to, to get you in. I'm like, they're going to actively push me under the water to yank me in? That is an act of submission. So here's my first time. I was the only one that fell out the first time. So I fell out, and somebody got pictures of this. I don't know if it was the, the company. And then here is me trying to hold on and get back in. But it was basically, we had to ride it out. And then John, this guy over here with the hat, pushed me under, pulled me back in. To be successful, I had to trust him to push me under the water to get me out. Submission is the first step. But he says this. He says, don't just submit, but resist the devil. And he, goes, he says, resist the devil and what will happen? He will flee. Now, the words it uses... The, the Greek word that it uses and the Hebrew word that it probably comes from actually means to that he's going to run very fast from you. But, but resist means to stand up against, to stand your ground. Now, who really wants to stand their ground against the enemy? I mean, think about that. Have you, if you've ever dealt with demonic stuff, it's scary, scary, scary stuff. But what this language says is, don't let him scare you. Don't let him intimidate you. You stand up against him, and who's going to be the one running? He is going to run. Because all he sees is God get behind you and say, okay, what's up? Who's being the bully now? And as he sees that, he can only flee. 
Isn't that exciting? Is that not amen material? That the devil will flee. It says submit to God first, but then after that, if you resist the devil, he is going to run. Will God ever run? No. He's not afraid of the devil. Come on. He sneezes and the devil flies away. This is important. He says, stand up against him. Come on. Actually, Ephesians chapter 6 say this, and you know this. I'm just going to read it real quick. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on, it, on the full armor of God. By the way, it was saying that the battle is, is a spiritual battle, right? Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He doesn't say, put on the armor of God because if he attacks you, you know, then it, you can take it. No, he says, so that you can stand up and punch his lights out. It doesn't say that. It's in the Greek, I think. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of, the, of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, which it will, it doesn't say if the day, it says when the day, you are able to stand your ground. Isn't that, that's powerful language. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. How many? All, not most, all of them will be extinguished. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, and this is, this is it, which is the word of God. There is, the word of God is actually a sword. No wonder the enemy runs. It's a stand your ground. There is nothing he can do if you have submitted to the Lord. That is powerful. And then he says, now you have to understand the context. He says, draw near. Remember, it says, come near to me, come near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now to you, you might just say, well, that's poetic language. But remember, the context here is he says, you adulterous people. He's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking about believers that had committed to Jesus and then have left. And he says, come back to God. And here's your reassurance. He's not going to reject you. He's not going to say, no. What? You did that? No. If you make the first turn, which the word shuv means, shuv, which means is translated repent. If you do that, he's right there. I know, maybe a little weird. Boom. You don't even have to walk back to him. He says, come near to him, and no matter what you have done, he will come near to you. These are step-by-step things that he's, he's saying here. But then he says, there is something you need to do, though, if you really are serious about this. 
You need to wash your hands and purify your heart. This is about commitment. You know, if, if, if you cheat on somebody and turn around, it is truly grace that they accept you back. But you got to give up what you're doing. That's what he's saying, is you have to do this. And by the way, he uses the imagery of two things. He says, wash your what? Hands and purify your heart. Which in Hebrew, now I know this is Greek, but he's speaking as a Hebrew in the common language. In Hebrew, the heart actually means the mind. Actually, if you want to know what we call the heart, like emotions, it's the bowels, which is different. So he says, wash your hands, what you do. But what is in the seat of your mind, you also have to purify that. Remember the, the seal of God and the mark of the beast? Remember, the mark of the beast, you could get either here or just here, which you could, means you can just do it actions even if you disagree here. But the seal of God is only here. It's only here. It has to be transformational here. And he says, you need to do both. You need to purify everything if you really want to avoid the quarrels and to come back. And then the last part, he says, I want you to mourn. I want you to mourn and turn your laughter into mourning. Now, I thought that the gospel was about peace and joy and happiness and, and love, and, and I do believe it is. But this is talking about something else, and I believe the clue is in the context and in the word laughter. Go to the next slide. Now, what is this? A cat. Can you see what he's doing here? What is in the middle? A mouse. Have you ever seen a, a cat or an animal toy with something else? Like another animal or an insect? I've seen, I've seen cats toy with spiders and stuff, and, like, and they don't want to kill it right away. It's sort of weird. They just sort of toy around with them. This word laughter actually comes from the Hebrew word tzachach, where we get the name Yitzhak, which is translated in English, Isaac. You knew his name means laughter, right? But a lot of times this word laughter actually is, means to toy with for your own pleasure or to ridicule so that you look better. Your status is elevated because you have ridiculed somebody else. And I wonder if that's what James is saying here. Because remember the previous chapter, he says, you've got to watch your tongue. Whenever you elevate yourself by discrediting somebody else, you better learn to mourn and turn that laughter away. Because you're hurting people. Because really, this whole context is about people. If you do not learn how to treat people, then you really don't know what God is about at all. I will say that even in our context. If our church, the Seventh-day Adventist Christian church, is about doctrine and knowing stuff and not about 
people, then it really is not the church of God. Did you hear that? If, if our church is about what we know and not about people, it is not a gospel-carrying church. Because the gospel is all about people. Jesus came to die for people. He did not die for the Shabbat, for the Sabbath. He did not die for the health message. I'm sorry, I believe in those. I am vegetarian, people. I believe in the health message. I believe in the Sabbath and the joy in it. But he did not die for that. The Sabbath was made for man. For people. And he says, you have lost your sight on people. If you do not go back to our main purpose to be part of this, then you're like this cat that just toys with people until you get what you want. And so he uses this key word. He says, humble yourself. And he will lift you up. You no longer have to elevate yourself at the risk or at the stake of other people. He will lift you up when you become the lowest. He will elevate you. And you realize that all of this, the climax of this is humility. James is saying one thing. He says, in tongue, you should be humble. In your actions, you should be humble. Remember, be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. In everything you do, you should be humble. And what humility means is that you lift people up. It is a return to innocence. And you remember as a child. So, so I, I want to read this one verse here, Matthew 18. It says this, Therefore, whoever takes the lowly, lowly position, in some translations it says the humble position or hum, humility, of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So if you become humble like this child, you will be lifted up. You know, the, my, my daughter, I'm going to show a picture of Madison. This was... A few years ago at a wedding and at a wedding that I did and and I remember at the reception and maybe tisk on me when you hear this but I let her just innocently dance around there where other people were dancing and you know the innocence of a child when they do this when they feel the freedom when they feel that, that nobody's out there to hurt me and I'm not there to hurt anybody else. And this is sort of the imagery of the word humility. Is I don't want to do anybody damage. And I don't want anybody to do me damage. And as you watch the children, that's why they have lessons for us. I think at times they learn the hostility from us. From what we say in our homes. For what we say in the company we keep. 
And he says, no, no, no. I want you to return to innocence. I want you to become humble and put other people up. In conclusion, there is one scripture verse that where somebody has the audacity to say this person was the humblest person on the earth. It was, as you know, Moses. And, in, in book, and I'm going to read it real quick. In Leviticus, I mean not Leviticus, in Numbers chapter 12, it's a, this is the context. And if you know the context, it was when uh, his brother and sister were totally criticizing him. And he says this. Uh, it, uh, it started off with Miriam complaining. He says, Has the Lord only spoken to Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken to us? And the Lord heard this. And it says this in parentheses, but it says, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now, if we believe Moses wrote that, you know, if I wrote that, you know, Pastor Rufo is the humblest person in this church, that shows a lot of humility, right? <laughs> I have wondered why he writes this. But it is inspired writing. But if you notice what happens, if you remember the story, is that Miriam, because she's really the instigator, of this griping, she gets leprosy. And Moses could have easily said, serves you right. Why'd you gripe? I've been talking to God, not you. But instead, he prays. He prays for her. And not only for her, when the people gripe against him and against the Lord, he actually says this. He says, if you're not going to save them, I want you to blot my name out also. A people that griped against him, he says, I don't care. I love this people, no matter how they have treated me. I want you to save them. Or I'm out too. This is humility. I'll say this. The Talmud, if you know what the Talmud is, which is a commentary on the Torah, the Talmud talks about the last eight verses this way. It actually says, if you ever read it, it talks about when he dies and then Joshua takes over in the end of Deuteronomy. And, and I'm going to read the last the last couple verses here for you. It says this, in verse 10 of chapter 34, Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all the miraculous signs and wonders the Lord has sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to the whole army. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of Israel. Now, what most of us don't know, and I don't know if the Talmud is right, but it says that God actually had Moses write that as he's about to die. 
And the way that the Talmud comments is it says that Moses cried as he wrote every word. Not because he knew he would die, but because he had the hardest time writing these things about himself because of how humble of a person he was. 